who lives in a spider web under the sea, Japanese spider crab. <laughs> I'm Eamon. And I'm Kaylee. Today's question of the episode is, who lives in the ocean deep? So, to talk about who lives deep in the ocean, we gotta first see how they're able to survive. Because the deep sea creatures' biology is very different from our biology because we don't have to deal with like extreme cold and like these huge Pressure. pressures trying to like squish our cells together and kill us. To survive this like crushing pressure, many of these creatures undergo this thing called deep sea gigantism. You've probably seen it or heard of it like in shows and movies. Memes. Yeah, memes <laughs> where it's just like this giant like weird alienist figure mm-hmm. and it, it's like a say for example it's a tube worm because this one is, is real yeah. and it's like 20 times the size of a normal worm yeah because mean. it's in the deep sea the biology behind it being so big um what they think like they as in scientists is that um because of their bigger size they have a lower ch- uh, temperature which means they have an increased cell size and increased lifespan which leads to an increase in maximum body size their body size allows them to have a lower temperature and because of that they're able to survive um, the colder temperatures in the deep sea and having a lower uh, body temperature in turn changes the cell sizes to be bigger which also as a side effect increases their lifespan and then with bigger cell sizes they're able to um, combat the pressure because they're bigger it's like is it surface area yeah okay surface area yeah it's surface area because it increases their uh, buoyancy buoyancy which then in turn osmosis yep. is able to occur because of the differences in uh, water pressure from within the creature and without. Right, high pressure to low pressure. Exactly. So that's how they survive. Um, examples of these huge ass weird creatures is the Japanese spider crab, which I kid you not is disgusting <laughs> and fucking enormous. Like I was telling my sister about it cause she's deathly afraid of spiders and she just had like a spider um, nightmare. And I was like, you do not want to know what I heard, uh, what I just learned about <laughs> spider crabs. She's like, I don't want to know. I'm like, they can be 12 meters. That's crazy. It's insane. Imagine like seeing that in your bathtub. <laughs> I would scream so loud. But yeah, so those are disgusting. By the way, Thought Theory has no um, prejudice against Japanese, <laughs> <laughs> Japanese spider crabs. They're just huge. And like, it's not just Japanese spider crabs. There's these tube worms too. Like we'll release photos on our Twitter mm-hmm. so everyone can check it out. But there's these tube worms and they look like the bottom of a centipede, but a lot taller and fatter. Like like a tube. Exactly <laughs> like a tube. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's how the biology of the creatures work. But you're probably wondering like how they eat and like how they see because I don't know if everyone knows this, you most likely do, but like there's no light <laughs> under the sea. There's not like a second sun. Did you think people thought there was a second sun? I just want to clarify. <laughs> In case people thought there was like another glowing sun or something. You are going to talk about bioluminescence though. Exactly. And that brings me to bioluminescence. So there's no second sun there. But a lot of creatures have developed this thing called bioluminescence. 
<laughs> and that happens when creatures oxidize organic compounds. So um, the way it works is that most of these creatures who have it, they have a light emitting molecule mm-hmm. and this enzyme. And what the enzyme does is that it catalyzes the oxidation of the molecule. So in other words, it speeds up the oxidation process when it's needed. So when these creatures are like chilling under the sea, you know, doing their thing and say they see someone they like really want to hook up with, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what happens is that the enzyme starts to speed up the oxidation process of the molecule and it starts to glow and that way they can see the person that they want to hook up with and they can be like, no, or they can be like, yeah, I tap that. <laughs> but I have a question. Yes. So, apart from tapping that, <laughs> um, I assume there's other benefits of bioluminescence, like locating or catching food. I'm glad you brought up food because actually, yes, some creatures use it for that, but a lot of them don't because if you have a light, it attracts. The, exactly. What a lot of them do actually to eat is, this is going to be really gross. What it is, is that they eat other animals that have already eaten food. Mm. Say you're in the deepest level of the sea. Yep. There is an animal on an above level that is able to eat the animals from the above level. What you do is that you'll randomly like jump out or like you'll wait until it dies and it comes to your level and then you eat it and absorb its nutrients. And this process is called chemosynthesis. And it means it means that you're transferring chemical energy into food energy. And that's how a lot of them like eat. But bioluminescence does have other functions other than just like mating. It's for defense. The creatures down there are used to the dark. Right. Because there is no, you know, second sun. <laughs> so they're used to the dark. So um, they're yeah, in your cornea. So because they have so many rods, they're hypersensitive to any light. So if all of a sudden mm-hmm. there was this bright flashing light. Blinding. And exactly. Provide some escape or stun. Exactly. They, it gives them the chance to dip. So a lot of times it's for camouflage too. To blend in with other creatures, say um, one creature is a known predator of another creature, and a light is its distinguishing feature, but you're um, you're a prey to that creature, you mm-hmm. can turn on your light and like blend in with the crowd kind of thing. So, this may be a, a very stupid question, but in Nemo, there's a little rod that shoots out with the light on the end of that sort of body part. I assume there's more ways that, visual ways that bioluminescence presents itself other than just like a little... Bobble. You're right. <laughs> so a lot of times bioluminescence presents itself in the scales themselves. I see. So it's like the whole creature that lights up. Okay. Or its tail. Um, fireflies are actually an example of bioluminescence, even though they're not um, in the deep sea. Because it's not just yeah. deep sea creatures that like have bioluminescence. Yeah, emits yeah, light. But yeah, so that's how deep sea creatures are able to like find their way in the ocean. But like, I've always been curious as to how humans know this about deep sea creatures. Because with bioluminescence, we know how it works, the basics, but we don't know a lot about it. Like, there's a lot of research going on about exactly why some of them have it and some of them don't. Why some of them are able to adapt to these harsh conditions mm-hmm. and others don't. How do we know about it? Let's start with the actual size of the ocean, because I think that's important to Yeah, how to big quantify. is this thing? So, essentially, 70% of the Earth's surface is covered by oceans. Sorry, Kaylee, could you be more specific? <laughs> Well, the Pacific covers 30% of the Earth's surface, the Atlantic covers 21, and the Indian Ocean covers 14% of the Earth's surface. And so what's interesting is that 80%, according to the U.S. National Ocean Service, is unmapped, unexplored. And I'll be more specific about 
the term unmapped mm -hmm. because we do have a general map of the ocean. But before I get into mapping the ocean, I thought I'd elaborate more maybe on the terrain of the ocean because yeah. I, I feel like um, a lot of people don't really know beyond what the beach has, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, like it's got the shells <laughs> and then there's the water and then there's like life in the water. Yeah, so broadly, by doing research, I sort of found a lot of really cool diagrams that show essentially the elevation differences and they categorize those elevation differences in a few different major categories. So land, the coast, then it depends on where we're talking about. I don't know if you guys have ever seen on Google Maps, there's a light portion that surrounds the coast that's generally considered to be like not very deep, maybe 50 to 200 meters deep. And that's the part that we would swim on, right? Right, and that most boats will mm -hmm. travel through. And so, but after on Google Maps, which is really cool, is the dark blue. And that's the part where it sort of descends into what I'm talking about. So there's the continental shelf. The nerd word for that is the epilagic zone. But the real word for that is um, the sunlight zone. And Amon okay. was talking about that. It's the period or the section of water that light can reach, reach through. The one that like the normal creatures live at. Yeah, and so that's essentially like surface to 200 meters deep. And then the continental slope, the nerd word for that is bathypelagic zone or the midnight zone. So it's sort of that transition from light to dark. And that is from 1,000 meters to 4,000 meters deep. It's really interesting because we were talking about pressure before and how organisms have to withstand that pressure. At the midnight zone, it's 5,850 pounds per square inch of pressure. It's really interesting because sperm whales, that's the deepest mm -hmm. that they go. Like just to give you some context, everything else that we sort of typically see when we're swimming is above that zone. Wow. In the, in the sunlight zone, essentially. And so that's where you start to see bioluminescent creatures and... Um, the crazy alien shit. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> and then the scary part is essentially the continental rise. The nerd word is abyssopelagic zone. <laughs> I feel like abyss is very <laughs> fitting for that. Exactly. And then we go into the abyssal plain, or the trench, which is the nerd word for that is the hydalpelagic zone. And that's like... 6,000 meters to unknown. We oh don't know God. really how far the deepest point in the ocean is. So far, what we've discovered is Mariana's Trench. Not the band. What's interesting though, before I talk about Mariana's Trench, speaking of just weird, gross mm -hmm. crap that's at the bottom of the ocean, essentially there's the ocean crust, which is different than the continental crust. Like the, It's above the tectonic plates. And essentially there's a solid rock, which is called the basement of the ocean, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> um, and then, so that basement is made of volcanic rock called basalt. And then on top of that, there's this ooze, <laughs> which is called pelagic ooze, which sounds as bad as it is, honestly. Like, <laughs> it's essentially the accumulation of calcium and silica from dead animals and plants. It just has floated and rested at the bottom. It's really gross. <laughs> Don't Google it, folks. <laughs> and so the deepest known part of the ocean, which I found really interesting, I did a little bit of research investigating it because I thought it was neat, is Challenger Deep in mm. Mariana's Trench. Because Mariana's Trench is a, is a big-ass trench. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's different points. So Challenger Deep is the deepest known point 
point of the ocean that so we know. So do we have that mapped out then? What we do know is how deep Challenger Deep is. Okay. That, that has been mapped, quote unquote. To give you a number, it's 10,994 meters deep, plus or minus 40 meters. Just to give you context on like how what, deep that actually what is, is 10,000 meters, Mount Everest is 8,850 meters tall above sea level. So it's deeper than Mount Everest is yeah. tall. Yes. And, and I so... thought I was short before. <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> so the first depth measurement of Challenger Deep was uh, 8,184 meters, and it was made by the British Royal Navy in 1873. So essentially the old school way of doing it, and how they did it in 1873, is by a process called sounding. So it's literally taking weighted lines of rope and literally lowering it down until it reaches sediment. Wow. Until it reaches the bottom. <laughs> very high tech, but very smart. <laughs> well, smart for the time, I would say. Because if you think about it, you'd have to do that at several points. Like, mm -hmm. if you travel, like, maybe a kilometer or something, or maybe 500 meters, you'd have to do that, like, you have to do that again to get data points, right? Yeah, because it's not just a level. Right. So that's the old school way of doing it. Sort of the in-between way, let's call it, is satellite. Okay. We can see most large features, so generally more than five kilometers differentiation of features. The ocean, it's big. <laughs> Deep. Whoa, really? <laughs> it's big, deep, and impermeable to radio waves, right? Right, because of the water. Right. And so if you think about how submarines communicate, it's by sonar, sound waves. Satellite can only do so much because satellites use laser altimeters. Is a nerd word for sure. So essentially it's this laser that the satellite transmit and it records the time it takes for that laser to hit some sort of bottom and bounce back up. And the same sort of idea applies to the, the new, newer way and better way. So it's, measure, it's using time to measure distance. Essentially, yeah. With the satellite, the specs are pretty low. Like, it's low resolution. It's two to five kilometers. Like, it's not a lot. And the vertical accuracy is 200 to 300 meters. And so there's a few... I actually, since I'm a nerd, I googled what satellites we have currently in space that um, look at things like ocean salinity, ocean mapping, that sort of thing. And there's a few of them. One that's really cool that caught my attention was the Suomi NPP Polar Orbiting Weather Satellite that was launched in 2011. And then what's really cool too that I discovered was the GOES or G-O-E-S 16, which is a satellite by NASA that's geostationary, which means the altitude is close to 35,000 kilometers directly above the equator. And so um, it's really neat. And there's a whole bunch of like soil moisture and ocean salinity satellites and topography satellites that I didn't even know existed, but they're out there and they're still orbiting. The new school way, the, the most up-to-date way, is called multi-beam bathymetry system. Okay, that sounds high-tech <laughs> in itself. Yeah, and it's essentially what I was talking about. It's sending um, from a ship or uh, AUV, which is an autonomous underwater vehicle, which I'll talk about a little bit. From the ship, sensors send sound waves. And like you were saying, it measures the, the time it takes for those sound waves to hit the bottom mm. and come back up. The specs on that are, I would say, a little bit better than satellite imagery because boats can map two to 10 kilometer sections 
pretty easily. There's a vertical accuracy of, in the case of AUVs, the autonomous underwater vehicles, there's 0.5 meters resolution and one to two meters vertical accuracy. So it's much more accurate than a satellite. Mm -hmm or just a normal boat. And these boats, by the way, are by far not normal because <laughs> they're very expensive. Only 10% globally has been mapped using that super specific mapping. So that's what I mean by like 80% is unexplored. It's not as specific, so there's huge gaps, like five kilometer gaps of, well, I don't know what may be there, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Or even the deepest part, like since it's so deep, it's so, hard and expensive and time-consuming to get resources close enough and deep enough to measure it super accurately so we can get a crystal clear picture of what is there, what's the terrain, are there any animals or organisms that we haven't discovered yet. Mm. And that's sort of the driving force of it's ocean like mapping. The, it's kind of like the whole thing about wanting to go to space to see if there's aliens. Like, what if there's aliens in the deep sea already on Earth? Well, here's the thing. That's a really um, not very popular idea. Because when we think of the ocean, we really take it for granted. And that's sort of what I've realized. So speaking of really um, interesting initiatives in ocean mapping, because you may be wondering, like, are there any unifying efforts to close that gap of unexplored ocean? And the answer is, for sure. The one that jumped out at me was called Seabed 2030, and it's essentially an initiative by General Bathymetric Chart of Oceans, which is a nonprofit group, to map 140 square miles, um, which is 362 square kilometers, of the seafloor. And so they want to do this by recruiting 100 of these specialized scientific vessels to. That's a lot of money. Yeah, to sail around the world for 13 years trying to use this sensor mapping. They've received a lot of money for this. Like, the, the largest one that I could find was from the Nippon Foundation, which is a Japanese nonprofit sort of organization that deals with loan giving. And they gave 18.5 million US dollars. And that is nothing compared to the accumulated wealth that they've had from other donations from other companies or nonprofits or governments even sort of to play the devil's advocate, is that maybe there's dangers or unforeseen implications of mapping the ocean in its entirety in such a specific amount of detail. So what, are you saying ignorance is a bliss? So by mapping in such a fine amount of detail, it may give mining companies the upper hand in discovering new places to mine for precious minerals, gas. So you're saying it could be harmful to our earth? Yeah, because it could provide locations that were previously unattainable for mining companies to go and access. I did some research and the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea actually governs deep ocean resources. And so it states that deep sea life must be protected really at all costs. And it's uh, really interesting to read actually, I'd highly recommend it. And that the revenue made from mining in international deep sea mm -hmm. waters must be shared with the international community evenly. That sounds impossible. <laughs> I know, like who would regulate that? Who, who could- Definitely not the UN, it's yeah, useless. I know, well how do you measure like the specific amount of revenue that you then split? I'm mm. sure there's some sort of formula or procedure. And what about but... nations that aren't recognized by the UN and our nation or nations that are recognized but aren't? It is essentially the, the space question, right? 
Mm-hmm. Like, and do we commercialize it? Is it only for the rich? Is it is it this unattainable thing, or is it, or should it be accessible by everybody? So it's almost better that we don't know everything. Well. Arguable. It's also, like we've mentioned before, very expensive to map the entire ocean. And that money could be used in other places. That's the argument, right? Also, um, I got this quote from Martin Jacobson, a professor of marine biology and geophysics at Stockholm University in Sweden. And he says, quote, People have been so excited about going to different planets, but we haven't been able to bring the attention to our own Earth in the same way as Mars. It hasn't been easy to rally the whole world behind us, unquote, in exploring the deep sea. Because we do take it for granted, and it's not necessarily the most accessible place, and it's a little less sexy than outer space, Yeah, as evidenced by the pelagic ooze and the giant (laughs) Japanese crabs. But here's the thing, uh, do you think science could eventually evolve to the point that we could um, make the deep sea habitable? That's an interesting question. I mean... Because yes, there's the dangers of exploiting the natural resources, but what if it weren't just to take it and leave kind of thing? Because overpopulation is the thing. So you mean like becoming sea people? <laughs> but kind of, you know how um, we're sending people to space? And, well, we're not sending people to live on Mars, but there's that theory and goal in mind. What if we were to do that with the ocean, not have people adapt, obviously, but to create technology that allows people to live? I mean, interesting question. Uh, A few major hurdles. The pressure. Mm -hmm. um, The fact that we'd have to create some sort of oxygen environment in such a deep, dark place. Mm Also, to keep in mind, space at the moment, I mean, we haven't really Mm -hmm. polluted it apart from our own Earth and our own atmosphere. But in the ocean's case, we have polluted the ocean. Mm -hmm. And so that may present some really hard challenges to overcome. To overcome. So it it may be possible. We haven't really done research on human ocean deep sea environments that Mm -hmm. people can live in apart from submarines so it kind of boils down to like is it preferable to start over or to kind of fix what we've already worked on yeah and and we don't really know what's in the deep sea until we actually map it and discover it for real to really find out what sort of lost creatures and lost terrains there really is so all we can really do is just keep digging or diving or swimming Just to let you guys know, all of our citations are in our show notes or are linked on our website. You can also, uh, if you're curious about some of the facts and figures that we mentioned in our show, we have them in a facts page that you can look at. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Thought2Theory. And you can always listen to us on Anchor and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thought Theory, and we'll see you next time.